Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 15. You know that that song, My Worth is Not in What I Own, I think beautifully captures the heart of the Apostle Paul and his ministry that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. The first stanza where we sang, My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. When, when, we, when we realize this, we are willing to sacrifice material goods and even our very lives. Because in singing this, if this is the resound of our heart, we value Christ above everything else. We value Him above the things that we own. We value Him above our own health. We value Him so much that we're willing to risk for His glory. We're willing to, to risk possessions. We're willing to risk our own name. We're willing to risk our own health, even our own life. Because we find the greatest satisfaction in Him. Because we say that my worth is not in skill or name. It's not in win or lose, in pride or shame. But it's in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. When that's our heart, the resounding message, the resounding theme of our tongue is that I rejoice in my Redeemer. I rejoice in Him. I, I don't rejoice just in the treasures of this world. I don't rejoice in the pride of my own life and the exaltation of my own la- name. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Why? Because He is my greatest treasure. He's the wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him, no other. No other. Why? Because my soul is satisfied in Him alone. That that is a a beautiful message. And it's one that we sing, and I think we have to ask, is Christ my greatest treasure? We sit here this morning, we gather this morning, is Christ my greatest treasure? Is there something or someone that you treasure more than Christ? Or... What do we say that we are satisfied? Our soul is satisfied in Him alone. Everything else is gone. Are we still satisfied simply in Christ? If everything we have is gone, there's a question we have to ask. And, and if we come to the answer, the conclusion, we say, yes, I am satisfied in Christ alone, then it will bring us to the point where we live fully embracing two principles that we're going to look at today in our passage. The principle of generosity being evident among God's people and the principle that that there are times when we must be willing to risk everything in order to be faithful to our Lord and carry out His will for our lives. Let's read Romans 15 together. 
beginning in verse 22 this morning. We will get to the end of chapter 15, Lord willing, verse 33. But let's read this morning, Romans 15, beginning in verse 22. The word of the Lord says this, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Do you remember last, last week? You remember he said, he had talked about his, his ministry in Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum being fulfilled, that he has preached the gospel and, and, and taken the gospel to the Gentiles in those areas. So now he is going to those who have not been told, who have not heard the gospel. And so that's why he says that in verse 22, a little context. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in those regions, or these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers... By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. As Paul Paul writes this, we understand the setting that, again, he's kind of at this concluding moment in his ministry, or not, maybe not concluding, that's probably not the right word, more of a transitional moment in his ministry where he's wrapped up his ministry among, the, among Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and now he's venturing on to Spain. And he see, we see in verse 24 that his visit to the Rome, Romans is not something where he's planning to go there and just stay there with them. It is a, kind of a stop along the way to Spain, Right? So his travel plans are to come and visit the Roman believers for a short time, verse 23 and 24. He's not planning to stay with them for an extended period of time, but he's planning to stop as he goes on to Spain. Verse 24, we read two hopes that Paul has, two hopes for his time in Rome. They're they're very simple, they're very to the point. The first one, he says, is that he hopes for assistance for his ministry. So he says, I hope to see you in passing to be helped on my journey there by you. He's hoping that when he comes, that they will help him in his ministry. The ministry to go and to travel and to carry out his work among the Gentiles is costly. And see, he hopes that they will come alongside them or come alongside him and assist him in his ministry. The second hope he has is that once I have enjoyed your company for a while, he so hopes to be assisted by them, helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company. He wants to enjoy fellowship. He genuinely desires to be around the believers. He longs to be in their presence. He longs to know the the joy of being near to them. 
We, we talked about last week, chapter 1, verse 8. He said that their faith has been made known throughout the world. At that time, in verse fi- or chapter 15, verse 14, he s- says he is satisfied with them. And now he hopes to spend time with the church that he's heard so much about. He wants to be physically around them in fellowship with them. So the two hopes of Paul in verses 23 to 24. That brings us to kind of the two big sections of this passage, two key sections that I think give us some principles that we need to look at this morning. The principle of generosity and the principle of risk and prayer as it relates to that. So the first one, verses 25 to 29, we want to look at this morning is this. This is the first principle, is that there should be generosity among believers. There should be generosity among us. That's just the reality of what it means to be a Christian. I I will say that in 1996, I was a freshman in college. And that winter, I think it was February of 96, uh, God had been just stirring in my life previously, the fall of 95, coming out of high school and, and going into school. I was an architecture major at Southern Tech in Marietta, Georgia, and was pursuing an architecture degree. In, in 1996, what, what God was doing, in, again, the fall of 95 leading into 96, was to completely shift everything I thought I was doing in my life and calling me away from architecture into pastoral ministry. And that was a, a big deal for me. And so in February of 96, I stood before my home church and shared with them that, that God had been moving and working in my life and that I wanted to faithfully follow him in full-time vocational ministry. This was a big step of faith for me at that time. And it, it meant changing everything from my major to the school I was attending and everything about my future plans. I'll never forget I don't know, maybe a week, two weeks later, after making this decision and, and sharing that with my home church, uh, there was a lot of things that they did to encourage me and to build me up and, and just to affirm that. But I got a call from my pastor, and, and he said, listen, I, I want you to know that I received a call today in response to what you shared a couple Sundays ago. He said, a gentleman in the church wants me to let you know that when you go to seminary, three, four years from now, whenever that is, that he's going to pay for every bit of your seminary. And I, I just, I didn't know what to say. I, I, I was taken aback. I, I had never experienced something like that. And he did it. I, I don't think I had ever had a personal conversation with this gentleman. I, I didn't even know who he was. I had to look, go home and look in our church directory and find out who he was. I, I didn't know him. We went to a church that was a little larger than ours here, and I I didn't know him. And yet, he felt compelled to show generosity to help us in seminary. That enabled us to go and enabled me to study and enabled me to not have to work while I was in seminary because he took care of it and he paid for it because he cared for God's people. It was the first time in my life that I experienced that type of generosity on a monetary level. The truth that I learned, the truth that I want us to see this morning is this, is that mutual sharing and support is normal, commended, and even expected among God's people. It is just a part of who we are. It's certainly the case in the early church. It's something that we see 
often in the early church. Now, with that said, I think we have to make a, a, a background statement, right? In our context, we have to be honest that there have been individuals in the church who have absolutely abused, in, abused the church in the area of finances, that have taken advantage of people monetarily. That is definitely something that we've seen. There have been grievous sins among leaders in the church, among pastors in the church, among people who are well-known in the church as far as parachurch organizations that have abused and stolen goods and money from God's people. That's happened. We, we can't ignore that. We shouldn't ignore that. There have been leaders who put ungodly, unbiblical pressure on their people to give and manipulated them to do so. They've coerced them to do so. That can't be ignored. It should not be overlooked. It should not be condoned. It should not be glanced over or pushed under the rug. These are grievous sins that have occurred and that should not occur. And so there, there's just two things that I want to tell you this morning. One is I want you to know with full assurance that Grace Baptist has a very good checks and balance system here to make sure that we are guarding the integrity of our finances. Everything is done with the utmost of transparency. There's great balance. There's great accountability to the finances here at Grace Baptist. And I, I just want you to know that. The second thing I, I want you to know is that we will not allow the abuse and the sins of others to cloud our understanding of biblical generosity. The, the reality of the sins of others who have manipulated, the sins of others who have abused and taken from the church and, and committed these grievous sins is not going to influence us and go, you know what, well, because that's happened there, we're not going to do what God's called us to do here. We're just not going to let that happen. We're going to be a people who obey the Lord and follow the Lord and show what it means to be Christians who love one another, care for one another, and help one another as need arises. We're going to be a generous people. So Paul says in verse 25, he says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to bring aid to the saints. He's going to help them. Those who are in need, he's going to help them to give them something. Now, how was he able to do this? Is this because Paul had made a bunch of tents? He had had a really profitable tent-making season? Is this why Paul was able to do that? No. Why does it say? Verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. The reason Paul was going back to Jerusalem to give them help to bring aid was because believers from Macedonia and Achaia had made contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so he was going to deliver that to them to bring them aid to assist them. Now, verse 27 has an, a really important statement that we need to look at. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. And you see twice here, in verse 26 and verse 27, Paul makes mention of them having pleasure in doing this. Verse 26, he says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor. Verse 27, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. So when he says they were pleased to do it, we understand that, that their gift was made of their own 
willingness. This is not something that they were coerced to do. It's not something they were forced to do. But rather it was an evidence of the grace and the generosity of God that caused them to be gracious and generous to others. They wanted to do it. They were pleased to do it. They found great pleasure in giving and being generous and helping those in need. But then he says while they were pleased to do it, what does he then say? Indeed, they were what? Indeed, they owe it to them. So on one hand, they were pleased to do it, but then on the other hand, they owe it to them. In in some translations, it's, it's worded indebted to them. It's something that they were obligated to do. They were indebted to give them. It's the same word used in in chapter 1, verse 14. If you remember when when Paul speaks of his obligation to preach to the Gentiles. And then we read it again in chapter 13, verse 8. We read the same word when Paul describes the the debt that we owe to our fellow believers, to love. Remember we talked about that that, that Paul says that we will never be away from or out from under this, this obligation to love our brothers in Christ. We're always going to have that debt. We're always going to have that responsibility. So he says, on the one hand, they are pleased to do that. On the other hand, they owe it. They indeed owe it. Now, there's an important distinction here that I think will help us when we think about owing because sometimes we, we read that and we go, I, I owe it, I have to do it, golly, and it, it seems oppressive, like I just have to, legalistic, and now I've got to give because I'm, I'm having to give. Well, the way we understand the word, we can either understand it as a legal obligation or a moral obligation. If, if we understand it as a legal obligation, it's something that, is forced upon us that we have to do to attain some standard of law, to abide by the law. Or if we understand that there's a moral obligation, it's something that's driven not by religious rules, not by religious coercion, not by trying to merit something, not because it's some kind of legalistic duty we have, but because that it is driven by a moral weight, by the ethical responsibility we have to love one another as Christ loved us. And so we need to understand this not as some legal obligation, legal debt, but a moral obligation, a moral debt. There is a moral weight to us giving to others and helping others and assisting others because it is based on the ethical responsibility we have to help our brothers and sisters in Christ as they have need. Now, look where this comes from. Verse 26, for Macedonia... And Achaia have been pleased to make contribution. Macedonia and Achaia. This would would comprise the churches of Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, Corinth. All those churches would be ones that would be identified in these two groupings. And we have writings about this. If you flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Let's look briefly briefly at Philippians 4 because Paul writes about these gifts. And he, he does so in a way that I think informs us when we think about the, the generosity among believers, it, this is informative. So Philippians 4, beginning verse 10, we, we read this. Paul says, I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. Now, or not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's writing and he is thanking them for, his, for God's provision through the Philippian church. The way they have come alongside him and partnered with him in ministry and given to him and invested in, in what he is doing. He's thankful for that. And we see there, real quickly, verse 10, we see that it brought joy to Paul to know that the Philippians were concerned about his well-being. That they were concerned, that they wanted to come alongside. He says, I rejoice greatly that you have revived your concern for me. But then in verses 11 and 13, we see that he he starts talking about contentment. that, That he is content in Christ. His contentment is not based in his financial standing. It's not based in an easy life because I have all the money I need. I have all the goods I want. No, his contentment is based in Christ. He says, I've learned the, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through him that strengthens me. He, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, whether I am in want or whether I have plenty. I am to be content in Christ. In verse 15, we see him talking about the partnership of giving and receiving. He says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. There was this partnership where where the Philippian church came alongside him. But this partnership was one of giving and receiving between Paul and the church. It was one of mutual benefit, mutual investment. And then finally, verse 17 We see Paul talking about the fact that he is less concerned with the gift itself and he is more concerned with the fruit that it displays. He says, not that I'm seeking the gift. I just don't want just your money. I'm seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. He describes their generosity and their investment in his ministry as a fruit, as evidence of God's work in their lives. And he assures them of what? Verse 19, I am confident that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He, he assures, he encourages the people and says, listen, I know you have given of yourself. I want you to know that God is going to supply for your needs. I know that God will do this. My confidence is in him. So we see Paul's interaction with the Philippian church about this issue, about giving. Now, think about the Corinthian church. Paul, um, uh, Mike read from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 8 briefly, I want to just look, we can't read all of 8 and 9, but chapter 8 and 9 speaks of the, the church at Corinth and their investment and their, their generosity, their giving to the ministry. So you heard what, what Mike read earlier in 8 chapter 1 and verse 2, or 8 verse 1 and 2, he says that the, the, the churches of Macedonia in severe test of affliction in their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. 
So in, in the abundance of joy and extreme poverty. And that's something that, that may sound a little strange to the American ear. How could I have an abundance of joy in the midst of extreme poverty? But evidently, the Macedonian believers knew how. They understood that, listen, my joy is not tied to my wealth and my financial standing. Why? Because I am not looking at, at, at what I own as being my greatest treasure. My, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in, bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Christ was what they were about, and so they still had immense joy in the midst of extreme poverty. And it overflowed, this joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. How did it overflow? In, in verse 3, they gave according to their means. But then not only did they give according to their means, it says, he, he says, as I can testify, they even gave beyond their means of their own accord. They gave according to their means that they had, and then they even went above and beyond and gave beyond their means. They gave sacrificially. Their greatest treasure, again, was not in what they owned, and so they were willing to give of what they owned to the benefit of God's people, God's kingdom. They were showing great generosity. In chapter 8, verse 8, just after where, where, where Mike stopped in the reading, in the next verse says, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. He says, listen, you're, the evidence and your, your gift and your, your giving, your eagerness to give and invest in others to be generous is evidence of God's work in your life. It is a demonstration of love. And then verse 9, we say this time and time again. You've heard me say it over and over again. The, the things that we're called to do as a Christian is based on what? On what Christ has done. Right? It's the same thing. We think about being generous. We think about giving. In verse 9 of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is the foundation of our generosity. The precedent that Christ in the riches of his grace became poor that he might pour out his grace on us. Why? So that we might become rich in Christ. That, that is the basis for generosity as a Christian. That's the basis for our giving as a believer. This afternoon, read chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're just going to skip down. We get to chapter 9, and in the beginning of verse 9, he talks about the, the collection that is given, the, the, the gifts that are given for the believers in Jerusalem. And that is given in verse 6 of chapter 9. This is the, the, the passage that we meditated on. He says, listen, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Give out of your heart. Don't give out of coercion. Don't give because you've been guilted into it. But give because it is an overflow or an abundance of joy. It is something that you find pleasure in doing because God loves a cheerful giver. I think there's, there's five things that we see here in these passages what, where we started Romans 15. We jumped over to Philippians and 2 Corinthians to give context to those Macedonian and Achaean believers. And Paul's interaction with them about these gifts and support and ministry. There's five things 
that we can see that biblical generosity looks like. When we think about biblical generosity, here's what we see very quickly. First one, it arises from the heart. Biblical generosity arises from the heart. We see that in Romans 15, 27. It arises from the heart. The second one that we also saw from Romans 15, 27 is that it carries a moral weight. There is a moral weight, an ethical responsibility to biblical generosity. It's not something that we do because we have to, but it's something that there is a moral obligation that we have. Third, we see in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that it is not forced or due to coercion. It's not something that's forced upon us. It's not something where you should ever be at a point where a pastor says, you have to do this. You have to give this amount if you are going to be a good Christian. It's not something that you should be guilted into. There's a problem, like if, if I come across and we're talking about this and, and it comes across as laying guilt upon you so that you will give, that's problematic. This is not something that should be done out of coercion or guilt. Fourth, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we see that it should be done from a cheerful heart. It should be done from a cheerful heart. It is something that, as he said uh, to the Corinthian believers, it comes out of an abundance of joy, talking about uh, the Macedonian churches. It is an abundance of joy, so it comes from a cheerful heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And then finally, the fifth thing that we see about biblical generosity is in four, uh, Philippians four nineteen, that it is done trusting in God's provision for us. We give trusting God's provision. We don't give and go, wow, now we're in a, now we're in a bind. Now how are we going to make it? No, we give and we invest in others. We're generous with others because we trust in God's provision. Now, at this point, I, I have to say that I can do nothing more than commend the fruit of God's grace in the lives of the believers at Grace Baptist Church. This is, this is a, a, an area where I come to and go, wow, God is, is just working and blessing through you. In, in, my, in my almost 20 years of ministry here, this December will be 20 years that I've been in Somerset doing pastoral ministry. And in, in that time, many of you know, a lot of you knew me when I came, right? And I, was, I wasn't even old enough to rent a van at that time, right? And that was a big celebration of the church when I was old enough to rent a van to take the youth places. But in that time, we came and we were poor as all get out. We didn't have any money. We didn't have savings. We just came with what we had. And our little U-Haul was very small. Some of you unpacked us on Planner's Way. You helped us unpack. It didn't take long, did it, Frank? You were there. It was pretty quick, right? Got there and there was not much in my house except for a broken stair rail that the youth had broken and a Christmas tree they set up, which we were excited about because now we had a Christmas tree. In that time, you know how I was able to move into Planner's Way? Because people in this body of believers helped me do that. Through the years, as I've done pastoral ministry here, there have been many times that we've been in great need financially because of something that's happened or something going on, and people have given to help us. And a lot of times, I don't even know who it was. I had no idea. God just somehow let you know, and you helped us. That's for me personally that I can commend you and your investment in us, your generosity to us. In that same time, I've seen you gather funds 
together when we were in need of land, in need of a place to, to build a church. I've seen you assist believers in building a church in Africa. I've seen you provide for the needs of a church to worship in Quebec. I've seen you purchase supplies for a pastor to rebuild his home after Hurricane Katrina flooded it. I've seen you help a family fighting through cancer. I've seen you give to a family who tragically lost a loved one. I've seen you come alongside family members uh, who suffered the loss of a job. I've seen you give to a family whose home was destroyed by fire and they had nothing. I've seen you give financially, faithfully through a pandemic. I've seen you, uh, I've seen, you know, the, the, some of us who have passed from our presence have had the foresight to plan ahead and to make an investment, an investment and structure their estate in such a way that it continues to help and supply um, needs, supply for the needs of missions. Now, I've seen the generosity of God's people here. I've seen the sacrificial giving of many of you to send others where you say, I can't go to Peru or I can't go to, to Brazil or to Thailand or to Europe, but I can give so that someone else can. I've seen you sacrificially give thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to put people all around the world to help them and invest in them. I've seen you give to kids who are going to seminary to invest in them that they might have a seminary education. I am so thankful for the generosity of the believers at Grace Baptist Church. And I, I commend you for that because it is a work of God's grace. My, my prayer is that that does not stop, that it does not quit, that we continue to be a generous body of believers. We have a lot of challenges facing us. You surely are aware of this. We have challenges. 2021 will bring financial difficulty. It absolutely will bring financial difficulty. And no matter where you stand politically, there is a bubble that we will hit financially as a nation, and it will bring challenges. And we have to be ready for that. We have to anticipate that. We have to know that the ripple effects of the pandemic are going to come, and they will hit in different ways. 2021, very realistically, could be a more challenging year financially than 2020 has been. We need to be ready for that. We need to understand that, that these challenges may mean that it will demand a greater sacrifice to give the same amount of what we would be giving or what we have given. The sacrifice might increase. We have looming over our heads a significant debt as Grace Baptist Church. Surely you're aware of this, that we have uh, just over a $2 million debt as Grace Baptist. And we can't lose sight of that and pretend that it's not there. That needs to be paid off. It needs to be paid off. I'm dreaming of the day that that is taken care of, that is, it is absolved, it is paid off, because on that day, can you imagine when every ounce of our resources is given to ministry and missions, carrying out the things that need to be done to function as a church, but also to put people around the globe to send people, that, that kids go to camp for next to nothing, that kids go on mission trips, that families can go. People have said, hey, have you ever thought about having an Airbnb in, in Quebec or in Germany to come alongside where people could go and just live with our missionaries for a month or two months? Yeah, we have. We need to get rid of debt. That's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Our financial ministry team is, is working on that. They're working on that faithfully at how we do that. 
But when I, when I sit back and I look at the challenges and I, I think about the challenges of the past and all the, the tragedies that have happened and the difficulties and the, the areas of need in my own family and families around our congregation and how you've stepped up and said, I want to invest in that individual, I want to give to that individual, I want to give to that circumstance, that need. And I've seen you meet the challenges. I've seen you meet the challenge of saying we need a place to worship. And look, here we are. Here we are. I mean, God miraculously provide th- provided this space. You know that from our history. And so I'm convinced, I know, A, that we serve a mighty God whose resources are unlimited. And I know, B, that we are a body of believers that God in His grace has, has led to be generous, that we are grateful for Christ's generosity, His kindness, the riches of His grace. And because of that, we're going to invest in and be generous to those around us. And we're going to be kind and rich in grace to them. That we are a generous body of believers. And so any challenge in the past that's been significant is, is, not, is not something that says we, we learn that we can't step up to it and that we're not a generous people. No, the challenges of the past have taught us that God has graciously worked in us that we are a generous people. The, the challenges of the past have been significant. What awaits us in the future is going to be significant as well. But I know the hearts of the people at Grace Baptist are ready to meet any challenge that faces us. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. And I want to walk with you in that. And I want to give with you to invest in the needs of people in our body, to invest in the future of grace and what we're doing. We, as the meadows, want to walk with you hand in hand in making that investment and giving of ourselves and sacrificing of our own stuff for the sake of the glory of God and the good of this church body. I am excited at what God has done and what he is doing and where he is leading us. We are the part of a generous body of believers. If you're a visitor, if you're a new member, you need to know that. You need to know that this is a rare sermon, I guess, when we talk about money. <laughs> we don't have to. I don't, I don't feel any need to get up here and guilt you and curse you. You simply need to know that you sit amongst a body of believers that loves to give and is generous because giving is not out of coercion. It is not something we do to earn something. It is not something we do because we're guilty, but it's something we do because we love Jesus and we want to see people living for Jesus. We want to see people come to know Jesus and we want people to know the love and the care and the provision of Jesus. That's why we give. And you need to know that you sit in the midst of a generous people. That's the first principle, that generosity is something that is just simply a part of being the people of God. The second principle we see from this passage is in these last few verses, verses 30 to 33, that the risk of ministry demands prayer support. The risk of ministry demands prayer support. We need to be a praying people. Look at verse 30 and 33. What, What is Paul's appeal? What is his request in verse 30? Pray for me. Will will you pray for me? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf. He asked them to strive together with him. This is not like a prayer request. Have you guys been there, right? This is one of those things we're all going to feel guilty about when I say it, including myself, right? Somebody says, oh, they tell you about a situation. They go, will you pray for me? And you say, oh, yeah, I'll be praying for you. And you come, and like two weeks later, they come back, and they update you about that, and you go, I forgot, right? 
This isn't a prayer request that Paul says, I'm going to just say this to make us all feel better, and I want you just to go, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 and then not pray about it. No, Paul says, I want you to enter into spiritual warfare with me. I want you to come and enter into striving with me to God on my behalf. I want you to pray for me. I need your prayers. This isn't something Paul's given just to fall on deaf ears. He wants them to genuinely go before the Lord and intercede for him. Now, why? Why does he ask for their prayers? He asks for their prayers. Why? Because he's going back to Jerusalem. His prayer is that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That's an interesting statement. What in the world is Paul talking about there? Why would he say, I want to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? He knows that he's about to do what? He's about to take a gift to Jerusalem, and he knows that in so doing, it's going to bring risk on his life. It is a risky thing for him to bring this gift back to the Jerusalem believers. Here's what we see here, is that ministry is not always easy. It will carry great risk at times. It's not always easy. It's not always simple. If you, if you want to read later, you don't have to flip over there necessarily right now, but if you just mark uh, Acts 21, and you read Acts 21 through the end of Acts, we see what Paul's talking about. We see it. In, in Acts 21, starting in verse 7, here's what we read. It says, it says when we had finished the voyage to Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemy's, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now listen to what Agabus does. This had to be an interesting moment for Paul. He says, coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his own feet, his own hands, and said this, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. He says, listen, you want to know what's going to happen? You go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, and you're going to be handed into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Who's him? Paul. He urges Paul, don't go. You're going to be bound. You're going to be given over to the Gentiles. And Paul, Paul says this. Um, says, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not stepping back. Paul says, I'm willing to die. I'm ready to go and be in prison and even to die. And he says, verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, they tried. They tried to talk Paul not to go. And he says that they ceased trying to persuade him and said, let the uh, Lord's will be done. And so they go to Jerusalem. Now, what happens in the remainder of Acts is they go to Jerusalem. When they get there, verse 27 of chapter 21 and following, we see that the people arise, and there is a great turmoil. The city was stirred up, it says in verse 30. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. The gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. As they're trying to kill Paul, the Romans come, and they break it up, and they give him over, and Paul is there. What, is, what do you think? Paul is in chains. He's bound, exactly what Agabus said. Paul's bound, and he's imprisoned. By the Romans. 
in Jerusalem. Why did Paul ask for prayer? He knew. He knew what it meant to go to Jerusalem. He knew that if he went to Jerusalem, his very life would be risked. He may not ever make it to Spain. He may not ever see the Romans. Why? Because there was danger awaiting him. But Paul says what? In 21 verse 13, he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How could he say that? Because Paul says, my worth is not in what I own. It's not in strength of flesh and bone. My worth is in Christ, in the costly blood of Christ at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer. I'm ready to die for Him. Because for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's go. Let's go. But yet in Romans, he says, pray for me. (laughs) Pray for me. Pray for me. Now, just so you get the rest of the story, you know how Acts ends, right? He, Paul goes and he, he speaks to the mob. Ultimately, the, the Romans allow him to speak to the mob that has bound him. Then he speaks to the Roman officials over the course of two years. He ultimately comes before King Agrippa, speaks to them, and then King Agrippa sends him where? Anybody know? God's providence. He goes to Rome. <laughs> God is an awesome God. God's providence says, listen, here's how it's going to work out. Uh, You're going to get to deliver what you need to deliver to Jerusalem. And once you do that, I'm going to send you to Rome. It may not look exactly like you you thought. You're not going to be in first class on the Airbus. Uh, You're going to be selling in chains, and you're going to Rome. Listen, here's what we learn. The Apostle Paul, who says, I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to Jerusalem. Don't try to talk me out of it. I know risk is involved. This apostle who boldly marched forward to Jerusalem, humbly and vulnerably, said, would you please strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf? That I would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He knew the risk that awaited But his longing was that his service, in verse 31 of chapter 15 in Romans, that his service for Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. Paul knew what awaited him. He knew the risk. And he knew he needed prayer. He knew that he needed the help of God's people. We must not be too proud to ask for prayer. We must not. And the reality is there are some amongst us that that's where you sit. Too proud to ask for prayer. How are you doing? I'm great. And you never tell someone, I am struggling. I'm battling fear. I'm battling depression. I'm battling anger. I'm battling bitterness. I don't have what I need. I can't get by. I'm discouraged. I need prayer. I just need prayer. Listen, prayer is not a sign of weakness. Asking for prayer is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of knowing that God is God and you are not, and you need people coming before His throne to pray on your behalf. There's vulnerability in prayer. We need to be vulnerable, just like the Apostle Paul. And just because we're vulnerable does not mean we're weak, does not mean we have little weak faith. 
It simply means we understand how God's economy works. So this morning, I just want to bring you back to where we started. My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Is Christ your greatest treasure? Is He your greatest treasure? Is is He so treasured by you that you're willing to do what it takes to advance the kingdom? Whether that means risking your own life, whether it means giving of your own resources, whatever it means. If you say yes, then I commend God's work of grace in your life and encourage you, keep on, brothers and sisters, keep on. Run hard after Him and find your greatest satisfaction in Him and in Him alone because He is the wellspring of your soul. Run hard after Christ. And never be too proud to ask for prayer from His people. Because the day is near. It may be here for you where there is a risk involved in living out your faith for Christ. In that moment, boldly step forward. Don't shy away. Boldly step forward in faith. But ask for God's people to pray for you as you do. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the account of Paul as he closes out this letter and just uh, the generosity of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And God, just the example that they have set for us. And God, I thank you for the work of grace that you have done here at our church in which, God, so many so many are so generous. God, I thank you for that. It's a, it's a blessing to be involved in, to be the recipient of that generosity. God, it is a blessing to, to be able to extend that generosity. God, I've been able to be on both ends by your grace. And God, I pray that we would just continue to be a people who is generous. God, that we would continue to be a people who who find their greatest satisfaction in you, that we're not captivated by the world's pleasures and the world's goods, but, God, we are captivated by you. And, God, I pray that as we saw in Paul the boldness and the faith to to go forward to Jerusalem to deliver that gift, to to bring aid, even though he knew that there was risk involved, God, I pray that when we stand at the door and we look forward at where you're leading and what you've called us to, to do and where you've called us to go and we look and we see risk, God, I pray that we would step forward in faith and that your people would surround us in prayer and that we would not seek to be independent, but God, we would be dependent on you and on the prayers of your people. So God, I pray that you would just continue to knit us together as a body who loves you and prays to you and praise for one another and praise with one another. God, please, 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 please continue to well up in us and cultivate in us a spirit of prayer that we would be a praying people. God, we ask that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.